0: Good to see you tonight. Luke chapter 14 in our Bibles, Luke 14. And actually what pastor just shared kind of drove me to two different passages this week. And uh, um, really, I knew I was preaching tonight and and really just kind of back and forth with the Lord. Uh, Daniel chapter three or Luke chapter 14. Daniel chapter three, Luke 14. And I can tell you the truth, until um, this afternoon when I had some time to study, it was all the way up to this afternoon, it was Daniel chapter 3, and uh, then the Lord uh, gave us some time to just uh, uh, have some time, and and, um, I spent a good amount of time, several hours this afternoon in Luke 14, and um, I've preached from Luke 14 before, but this is a kind of a, a, a different look at it, I guess. Um, And really, what Pastor just shared kind of drove me to those two passages. And, um, you know, we live in a time where it's time to take a stand. And uh, we we really need to see some people who step up to the plate and take a stand about some some things. And whether that's a matter of a vaccination or just a matter of just standing for Christ, we, in this day and time, uh, need people who will do that. So in Luke chapter number 14... In our bibles uh tonight we 're going we 're going to read several verses tonight and and that is um, actually not what I normally do. I normally will read one verse and usually preach just from one verse, but uh, uh, there's three times a phrase is repeated in Luke chapter fourteen and I think it's really interesting that the Lord Jesus is speaking, and three times he makes this emphatic statement that is almost shocking and especially uh, I think so often, um, we, hear this, we hear this very often. Uh, you know, if you get saved, you are automatically a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not true. Not true. Uh, now, you, I, if you say, no, that, that's not true, Brother Tony. Stick with me for a few minutes, okay? Because I'm not telling you it's not true. I'm telling you that Jesus makes this declaration in Luke chapter 14. And I I think we do great damage to Christianity because we have this idea that everybody who gets saved is automatically a disciple. uh, And we don't really disciple people any longer. We don't train people what it means to be a disciple any longer of Jesus Christ. And, And we are not all automatically disciples just because we get saved. Uh, I think of the perfect, probably, example of somebody who is not a disciple in the Bible, but definitely is saved, is Lot. I don't think anybody would accuse Lot of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But Peter tells us that he was a righteous man. You cannot be righteous in and of yourself. Therefore, he had to have been saved, but he was not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And as we come to Luke chapter 14... Um, I want to just remind us of the definition of disciple. A disciple is an inherent who accepts the instructions of another, or a follower, in other words, who accepts the uh, instructions of another and makes those instructions the rule of conduct for their life. So in the matter of Christianity, we would say this. A Christian disciple is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, having already received Jesus as their Savior by faith, but now purposes to grow in grace and knowledge uh, uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by making all of his teachings the rule of conduct for our life not in an effort to secure our salvation or to keep our salvation, but so as to bring glory to God and to please Him. And so let's look at Luke chapter 14. And I want to read verses 25 through verse number 33. And I want you to notice that Jesus makes an emphatic statement three times to a group of people who are following him, if you will, but he, he lets them know something. The Bible says in Luke 14 and verse number 25, and there went great multitudes with him, that's Jesus, and he turned and he said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, watch, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else... While the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Three times in the, this passage, three times in Luke chapter 14, the Lord Jesus Christ declares very, very plainly In terms that you can't miss, it is possible to be saved, but not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to look at that tonight and see if we can understand some things on what keeps us from being true disciples of Jesus. Not just people who are on our way to heaven, but people who live for Jesus each and every day. And, and want to do what we can in this world to point people to him. Let's pray together and, and look at this text if we can. Father, thank you for the day and your goodness. Thank you for your word. Lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that you will bless our time in the word. Speak to every heart. It has already been prayed, Lord, there's somebody here or somebody Uh, Maybe watching by way of live stream. I'm not sure about that situation tonight, but uh, Lord, we pray that nobody would go away without knowing you as Savior, understanding that salvation is free and by grace. Discipleship is a completely different matter, and we'll look at that tonight, and so be glorified in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story about Daniel Webster and uh, one day his father was going to be away from home and he left Daniel and his brother Ezekiel a number of chores that he wanted him to do as he was gone for the day. And when his father got back, when Daniel and Ezekiel's father got back to the house, he found out that none of the chores had been accomplished. And obviously... Daniel and Ezekiel Webster's father was a little upset. and He looked at Ezekiel and he said to him, Ezekiel, what have you been doing all day? And Ezekiel was very honest and he said, nothing, sir. And he looked at Daniel and he said, well, Daniel, what have you been doing all day? And Daniel looked at his father and he said, I've been helping Zeke, sir. (laughs) You know, we're all pretty good at making up excuses, it seems like. seems like we're all pretty good at letting people know why we don't do something and, and the excuses for it. And we may even be impressed with our excuses, but usually nobody else is. And, and in our text, it's important for us to understand the context. And, and you know tonight, you understand this tonight, that everything you read in the Bible, you have to understand the context uh, you know, you ever have a conversation with somebody and they say something and you have no clue what they're saying? And uh, this happens a lot in my life and I look at somebody and I just go, context. Context, please. Because I have no clue with what, where the conversation just hits you and you're like, what are we talking about? Well, it's important for us to understand what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about, to whom he is speaking and what is happening in this text tonight. That's the context. And in this context of Luke chapter 14. If we were to back up to verse number one, we would find that Jesus has just finished having a meal at a chief Pharisee's home. And it was at that meal that Jesus gave the parable, that we're also very familiar with, of what we call the marriage supper. And at the marriage supper, you'll remember that there had been those who had been invited to come and join in the supper, And the Bible says in Luke 14 and verse 18, they all began to make excuse. With one consent, they all began to make excuse. One one fella says this, he says, well, listen, I can't come to the marriage supper because, well, I bought a piece of ground and he's obviously never surveyed it and he needs to go. He needs to be excused because he's got to go check out this ground that he's bought. Well, think this through. In in this time, most banquets were held at night. He wasn't even going to see much at night. But not only that, who buys a piece of land without surveying it? If you do that, raise your hand because I have land in Florida that I want to sell you later on. Happens to be in the Everglades, but I'll be happy to take your money. The next guy says this. Well, I have purchased five yoke of oxen. Five yoke of oxen, that's ten oxen. That's a lot of ox. He says, look, I've purchased five yoke of oxen and I haven't proved them. I've got to go prove them. You know what that's like? That's like going to the used car dealer and saying, hey, sell me anything you got in the lot. I won't even test drive it. Who does that? The next guy says, here's my excuse. I married a wife. That's like saying... um, Well, I'm just going to be quiet. (laughs) Excuses. Everybody has them. Most people aren't so interested in hearing them. And Jesus, as he hears these excuses, he relays the heart of the master of the house. And if you know the parable, that the master of the house is representative of his father in heaven. And the master of the house says, "Okay, these don't want to come. Then you go out quickly into the streets, into the lanes of the city, and you bring in the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And these are the whosoevers of the gospel. And and as they do that, according to Luke 14 and verse 22, the master of the house looks and he says, there's still room. Why? Because there's always room at the cross. And there's no limit to how many people who uh, may be saved. And the desire of the Father is that His house may be filled. That's what Luke 14 and verse 23 says. And that's really exceptionally important background so that we can understand where we are in our text tonight. Because the title of this message is taken right from the text. You cannot be my disciple. And what I want us to understand is you can be saved and still not be a disciple. And and it's important to understand that there is a distinction made in Scripture. And we do harm to Scripture by simply saying things like, well, now that you're saved, you're a disciple. No, now that you're saved, you need to be discipled. And you need to become a disciple. There's a reason why we do discipleship. It's to make disciples. We are called to make disciples, are we not? Uh, In the Great Commission, one of the things we're supposed to do, one of the things we have failed at tremendously in our churches, we're great at getting people the gospel. We love to baptize people. We're Baptists, but we're not so great at discipling people. And that's one-third of the Great Commission. And by the way, if you get one-third of the questions wrong on a final exam, every college under the sun, you fail. And and I want us to make this distinction because the Bible does. And as you search the scriptures, you will find that salvation is a call given to the whosoever's of the world, but discipleship is a commission given to the willing. And Jesus said in John three and verse number seven regarding salvation, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. In in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12, we are told that there is none other name given under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved. And so you see, in regards to salvation, the Lord does not say you cannot. In fact, he says you must. You must be saved. There is no cannot in salvation that comes from God. If there's a cannot in salvation, it comes from man himself. You remember the newlywed in in the parable I just mentioned? He said, I cannot come. The idea of that phrase is more reflective of a state of mind than it is an ability. A very literal translation would be this. I refuse to come. The newlywed isn't saying, because I have a wife, I can't do it. He's just saying, not interested, not going to do it. And, And so... You search the scriptures and you will find that at least 19 times in the scriptures, we read that the Lord's invitation to salvation is tied directly to whosoever will. But not so with discipleship. Oswald Chambers rightly said it this way. He said there is always an if in connection with discipleship. And Luke 14 and verse number 26 starts with the word if. Matthew 16, and verse 24, where Jesus is preaching on discipleship, he uses the word if. And, and what I want us to understand is that salvation is open and available to all who will come by faith, but discipleship is only for believers who are willing to pay a price. And, and, and salvation, we understand, is not by works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is all who will come to, by faith, come to the cross. There's there's no cross for you and I to bear in salvation. Jesus did that. But Jesus says in this text, for those who will be disciples, there's a cross to bear. It's vital that we understand that discipleship, and sometimes you even hear this, that discipleship or disciples and salvation, they're just one and the same, but they're not. And if if you mix them, you come up with a work salvation. Or at least a salvation that has to be kept. And we don't believe that. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able. I don't keep my salvation. He keeps me saved. And and so we have to look at this and understand that Jesus is saying, you can get saved for free, but discipleship will cost you something. There's a price to be paid in the matter of discipleship. And so Jesus says three times to this crowd who has Come out to follow him as if they would be his disciples. He said, let me give you three reasons why you can't be my disciples. Three things. And Jesus' response to this crowd is, you cannot be my disciples. You can be saved, but if you put anything before me at all, you're not my disciple. And I want to break it down because Jesus does. And let's take a look and see These three times that Jesus says, you cannot be, you cannot be, you cannot be my disciple. Let's see why, what happens, what gets in the way of me being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, notice with me in verse number 26, the first reason that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you will not be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is if your affections are conflicted. Your affections are conflicted. Verse 26, again, Jesus said this, If any man come, after, uh, come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is Sunday night. You understand that when we read this word hate in our text, that Jesus is not saying that unless you have animosity in your heart towards your kin toward your mother and father as a child unless you unless you're angry and, and hold animosity in your heart toward your mother and father you can't be my disciple. He's not saying that we have to despise, detest and abhor our kinfolk. We understand that this word hate is used in a comparative form, right? We understand that that when uh, when when we see this word hate it's that the love that we have for Jesus is so great that it appears to be hatred, what we hold for everybody else in our hearts. That's what we read in Genesis 29, in Malachi 1, in Matthew 10. When, when, when God says, You know, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, God didn't hate Esau. If he did, then why did he send Jesus to die for him? Because he died for everybody. And so it's just a comparative word. And the word is, listen, I love Jesus so much that if anybody looked at, at my love for anybody else, they would say, boy, you don't really care for them at all. In comparison. The Bible declares that our love for Jesus should be the kind of love that we have in a marriage bond. James says to have a love for anything of anything that approaches our love for Jesus is paramount to adultery. Now you begin to understand if you have a spouse, a husband should not have a love for any other woman that approaches the love that he has for his wife. And a wife should have no love in her heart for any other man that approaches the love that she has for her husband. In fact, all other relationships should be so, uh, uh, should pale so much in comparison that you would say there's nothing there at all. But the problem is that we have learned to spiritualize the sin of adultery mostly when it comes to God. When God says you have committed adultery, we are always like, well, that's just a spiritual thing and it, it, it doesn't really matter that much. And So we build up idols, even though God says that that's adultery. And I'm not talking about Molech, Molech and Astroth and Baal because we're far too sophisticated for such things. We have more acceptable names now. Names that are harder to argue against and certainly aren't very convenient to point out. But Jesus named some of these idols and so should we. He just listed them in this verse. Boy, he he names them by name. Father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, even myself. I think it would be safe to add girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance. And so many people fall into this trap. Many will never follow the Lord's leading. You know, I mean... We've been involved with, in missions since, since we you know, were sent out of Harvest Baptist Church to be missionaries. Almost, what, 25, 26, I don't know how many years ago now, but a long time ago. When we went to Quebec, it was to plant a church on a foreign field, to came back to Arizona and planted a church there. And now, as we work with uh, uh, missionaries across the far north in Canada, Greenland, Alaska, out of the central office, the home office of Baptist International Missions, uh, you know, we are involved in missions on a regular day, uh, daily basis, day in and day out. I am dealing with missionaries. I am dealing with churches And I am dealing with people in churches. And what I find is that a lot of people will never follow the Lord's leading, especially when it comes to the matter of foreign missions, because we cling to our families and we won't let them go. We need more like Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, watch, from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Christianity always takes things further than than world philosophy because the philosophy of the world can even convince somebody to say, hey, listen, don't be so attached to land and to your country. But God says from your kindred. Jesus said, you better, your love for me better be so great that it makes your love for your kindred look like hatred. And I would contend that we're given some insight into the fact that Abraham understood this. I know that probably even right now some of you are thinking, but wait a minute. Abraham had Lot with him and Sarah and they went with him. But if you're careful with the scriptures and you go down to Genesis 12, 4, just a few verses later, the Bible says this and it's really important how it's written. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Abraham departed. Now watch. And Lot went with him. Abraham departed and in an order of events, Lot followed. But Abraham was going to go it alone if he had to. And, and I'm telling you that it works on both sides of things. There are those who will never consider going to missions because, well, I could never leave my family. And there are moms and dads who deter their children from missions and steer them to everything under the sun. Because here's what they know. One day there's going to be grandchildren and I want my grandchildren near me. And I don't really want my kids involved in missions because what if God sends them to a place that's very unsafe and, and a place that I can't visit them all the time? And Jesus simply says, if that's the case, you can't be my disciple. There are those like Abraham who will not follow the Lord's leading because they put their family first. There are others who will forsake the assembling in the fellowship of believers because of family ties? I think Moses is a good example. Stick with me on this. The Bible says about Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 26, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Now, think this through. We always think, you know, Moses, Moses was a Hebrew, right? And he's this great leader who leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. But for the first part of Moses' life, who does he know as his mom? Who's the person that took him in and cared for him? Pharaoh's daughter. So, So think about this. Who's this closest kind of relative, if you will, if you want to say it that way? Adopted into the family of Moses into the family of Pharaoh, right? His, his, Pharaoh's daughter cared for him. But Moses knew something. God's called me to something else. And he knew that it was gonna cost him. And he knew he had a greater bond with the family of God than he did his adoptive family in Pharaoh's house. And I know that because Stephen, when he gives his great discourse on, on Moses and, and a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of the Israelites' wanderings and all in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this, he clarifies something for us. He says, for he, speaking about Moses, supposed his brethren would have understood. You remember the Israelites didn't fully accept Moses at first. But the reason that Moses was confused about that was because he supposed that his brethren would understand. How that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. See, Moses knew. He knew he had this family in Pharaoh's household. He forsook that to follow a greater calling. And too often, I I think we miss doing what God wants us to do and how he wants us to encourage God's people, his people, because we elevate others to a place they should not be. I tread lightly when I go to Hebrews 10 and verse 24 and verse 25, because I I truly believe that Hebrews 10, 25 very often is used and misused and abused a lot. Now you could disagree with me on this and that's fine. But Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says this, "'Let us consider one another to provoke unto love "'and to good works.'" And then it follows up with not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You know one of the reasons why I endeavor not to miss church? Because I want to be used to God. To show up, to provoke others to love and good works. Even if I'm not the guy who's going to be preaching, I want to do that. And why do I skip family gatherings and show up at church? Because I believe God's got something for me to do at church. The Lord is is not calling us to forsake our family completely and to hold them in contempt. And I am not even suggesting that those who miss a single church service to attend great-grandma's 400th birthday is sinning. I believe that Hebrews 10 is more about a pattern of behavior than single incidents of behavior. And that's why I think that Hebrews 10 and verse 25 sometimes is misused and abused. But my pattern should be, I want to be where God is going to use me. And if that means I've got to skip the family picnic or I've got to leave the family picnic early to get to the evening service on Sunday night, then then I'm going to skip the family picnic. See, Jesus makes clear that our love for him needs to be preeminent. Preeminent means he's the only one on the list. Not that he's number one on the list, the only one. Just like you go back to the marriage relationship. Husbands, tell your wife you love her preeminently and tell her at the same time you love her more than every, any other woman on your list. See how that works out. And I am not saying that those who, who don't do this just as Jesus says don't love him at all, I am saying this, they don't love him as as they should. I didn't say it, Jesus did. And Jesus says, if you don't love me this way, you can't be my disciple. So number one, we can't be his disciple because our affections are conflicted. But number two, our ambitions are confused. Our ambitions are confused. Verse number 27 And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. After we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his cross for salvation, we must come to him looking for our own cross to bear. And let's be honest. None of us in this room is real excited about bearing a cross. Take a look at the modern church and the modern Christianity and we chase far more after convenience and comfort than we do a cross. But Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, there's a cross involved. He said it loudly. He said it plainly. You can't mistake what he said. You cannot be my disciple if you do not bear your cross. Very quickly, consider four truths about cross-bearing and and why we don't like it. Why we we don't want to. But before I guess we do that, I I I guess I do want to say this. It's important for us to understand that the consequences of sin in our life, the difficulties that result because of sinful choices, Those are not our cross. I tire of hearing people. I hear it less now in the present ministry in which we are involved than I did when I pastored. But when I pastored, I would hear so often, I've got this cross to bear, and I would know the whole story. I would know the context. And I would understand that probably a lot of what we were talking about was consequence of sin. And I tire of hearing that the consequence of my own sinful choice might be my cross to bear. Listen, the consequence of my own sinful choice cost somebody a cross. It was Jesus Christ, and he already bore it. And it's all done. It's finished. So do not pretend to carry that cross. Jesus didn't have to bear that cross. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And it's important for us to understand that this cross bearing, it's not the consequence of our sins. If it was, then Jesus didn't need to die for our sins. It's also not imposed upon us. It's something we take up willingly. And then I want to just say this. Your cross, it's not your neighbor who you can't get along with. Your cross isn't your lapel pin or your bumper sticker. Your cross isn't isn't your necklace that you wear with a cross on it. The cross is far more than that. And so quickly, let me give you some, some truths about the cross and why we don't like to bear it. Number one, the cross speaks about solitude. Jesus said, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, my cross that I bear in discipleship is not the cross that you bear in discipleship. It's not a group thing. The Bible says about his closest companions during his mock trial and as Jesus was going to the cross that they all forsook him and fled. Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The cross is about solitude. In other words, you're all alone. It's my cross. Can you imagine how difficult these words were for this great multitude that followed him from this Pharisee's dinner? They had left a dinner at the chief Pharisee's house to follow Jesus, and you can imagine that they were thinking there's gonna be accolades and applause and there's gonna be attaboys and Jesus is gonna be so proud of me. And Jesus says, wait a minute. (laughs) Let me tell you why you can't be my disciple. And he begins to preach about bearing your cross. And you can imagine that many at this point had ambitions that were confused. Many who thought they would hear the applause of the Savior now hear this preaching and they think, this isn't what I signed up for. You see, you and I, we understand it's, it's, it's always easier to follow Christ in the crowd than it is to walk Golgotha alone. But Jesus said, it's, it's not a crowd. It's not numbers that I'm interested in. It's your individual life. And, and so it's your cross. You think of all the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And each one of them bore a a, a cross, Besides their act of faith, we know that they were just very real people. And I think not too terribly long ago, on a Sunday sometime here at this church, I preached uh, from Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 about running our race and and, and talked about just the the day-to-day trials of those people in Hebrews 11. For example, Joseph's family and, and all that he had to deal with there and being sold into Egypt and all of that. But it was a cross he bore. But you know what you don't find in Hebrews 11? You don't find a movement of a whole bunch of people. It's just individuals bearing their cross. It's solitude. And the problem is, we don't like to be singled out. It's easy to be a disciple in the youth group, it's easy to be a disciple sitting in the church pew on Sunday or Wednesday night. It's a little bit different when you have to stand alone, and especially in the world in which we live. Jesus said, I'm looking for people who will stand alone and bear their cross. Even when nobody else is around. Maybe there's just a, a, a couple. Maybe there's just one Navy officer willing to say, I'm not going to take a vaccination because that's his biblical conviction. And this isn't about vaccination or not vaccinated. Whatever you want to do with that, that's between you and God. But what I'm saying is, somebody's got to take a stand. And if your biblical conviction is, I can't do this, It may be hard to bear. So the cross speaks about solitude, but number two, the cross speaks about shame. When I speak about shame, I mean the dishonor associated with the cross, the humiliation associated with the cross. Understand that the Roman cross was designed to bring humiliation at every turn. The cross was meant to strip a person of every bit of honor and dignity and pride they might possess, Ultimately, the cross was an instrument of death, but it was, it was, everything about it was designed to bring shame to that person, to dishonor that person, to humiliate that person. Galatians 5 and verse 11 says that the cross is an offense or it speaks of the offense of the cross. It was a shameful thing. It was meant to bring dishonor. You remember the mocking crowd at the, foot of, at the feet of Jesus Christ, at the foot of his cross? But we want comfortable Christianity. We don't want to bear any shame. We want to be liked. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want people pointing a finger at us and dishonoring us. We would rather have them like us. Jesus said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. So when the world starts liking me too much, I begin to wonder. Jesus is not looking for undercover Christians. You want to be undercover? Join the CIA. So many will refuse to take a stand or to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we're light years away from that first church, those first century Christians who rejoiced according to Acts 4 and verse 41 and counted that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Today, we want commendations and compliments. Oh, we'd like to have a crown to throw at Jesus' feet, but hopefully we don't have to bear any shame for it. The third part about the cross, it just kind of keeps getting worse, and I'm sorry for that, but it's the Bible, so I'm not sorry. It's kind of like that Reese's commercial, right? Sorry, not sorry. Third thing about the cross speaks about suffering. Suffering. Everything about the cross was not only designed to bring shame, but to bring the most horrific suffering upon the crossbearer possible. In fact, I don't know that since the cross, we have come up with a more diabolical method of putting somebody to death and causing more suffering. There was nothing kind about the cross, Now, I I said it this past Sunday, we are getting our very, very first taste of what it means to kind of face real opposition to Christianity in the United States. I know you've probably been door knocking before 2020 and 2019 and somebody slammed the door in your face, but that wasn't real suffering. We're getting a little taste of it now. We still don't really know what it is, Nobody in the United States thus far is going to be executed for their stand for Christ. Not like those living under communist Chinese rule or Islamic fanatics. How would you like to be a Christian in Afghanistan tonight? You see, our our idea of suffering is kind of skewed. In the United States, our idea of suffering is, man, I got to go without cable TV so I can give a little bit more to missions. It's funny, but it's not. I got to miss tomorrow night's sitcom so I can be at the revival meeting. I got to give up a little bit of my time so I can go out and knock doors and tell people in my community about Jesus. And we think that that somehow that that counts for suffering. And sadly, a lot of people aren't even willing to do that. I'm simply saying that, you know, we'd rather have our comforts than the suffering of the cross. And Jesus said, that's fine, but you can't be my disciple. The fourth thing the cross speaks of, and and again, it just gets harder, honestly it does, is it speaks about surrender. Because by the time somebody came to the cross, surrender was a foregone conclusion. There was no more fight. The cross bearer was not going to have any say in any detail of their life from the moment they picked up the cross forward. You know, if the, if the person bearing the cross, if the, if the soldier said, hey, listen, Golgotha's to the left, and the person bearing the cross said, well, I'm going right, guess what? They weren't gonna go right very long. Surrender was a foregone conclusion. But we live in a world and a society that is ingrained into our minds and our hearts that we should be in control of every aspect of our life. But that's absolutely opposite to what Jesus calls us to. Jesus told us we're to surrender our life to him. We're to die daily to self. We're to mortify our members in Christ according to Colossians 3. We're to be hid in Christ according to Colossians uh, chapter 3 again. And the Bible speaks about true Christianity incorporating into it full complete unconditional surrender. And that means we don't come to the Lord with a list of things that we're willing to surrender. But it means I come to the Lord with a blank piece of paper, my signature already at the bottom of it, and say, here, you fill it in. I've been at this long enough to know that a lot of people think surrender is this. Lord, here's a, places, a, a list of the places I would go as a missionary, you pick. And God says, yeah, keep your list. Uh, here's, a, here's a list of the things I'm willing to do. You pick. And God says, yeah, keep your list. You see, real surrender says, here am I, Lord, send me. Amen. Real surrender says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do before we even know what he might want us to do or where he might want us to go? I'm saying that to bear the cross means full surrender. We sing the song, but I'm not sure we should because I'm not sure we always mean it. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him. In His presence daily live. Can I tell you that if you live in the presence of Jesus Christ, you know something? I don't get any say. Because when you truly understand, I am in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, there's only one person who gets to say anything, and that's him. We don't like the cross. There's too many negatives attached to it. And Jesus says, okay. But you can't be my disciple if you don't bear your cross. A third thing, and quickly, and I'm done. Jesus said, Jesus said, You can't be my disciple if your affections are conflicted. If your ambitions are conflicted. And then he says in verse 33, if your allegiances are contrary. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all, that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The word forsaketh here. It's an interesting word, and if you study it out, it it holds this idea of breaking allegiances, of putting something aside to prevent it from becoming a hindrance or gaining excessive control over you. It's an interesting word. And so Jesus said, look, if your your allegiances are contrary, you're not going to be able to be my disciple." And there are a lot of people who maybe even get through these first two. But maybe stumble at the third. Something that keeps them from true surrender, true biblical discipleship. Something is in the way. There's some allegiance that they have that is contrary to the cause of Jesus Christ they are clinging to. Some hindrance that needs to be set aside. And I have no clue what that is in your life. And I truly don't even want to know what that is in your life. The only person in whose life I am interested in who, where there's an allegiance that is contrary to following Jesus is my own. But I, I have a suspicion you may know what that, what that is. I know that if you would ask God to show you what it is, he would show you. Search me, O Lord, know my ways, try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. We don't like to pray that prayer. I don't know what it is. You probably know. I know Jesus knows. And while I don't know what that final hurdle to be cleared is in your life, to bring you to a point of true biblical discipleship, I do know that Jesus gives two parables in this text to kind of help us understand some things. And the two parables are in verses 28 through 32. We read them, so I'm not going to reread them. But he says this. He says, first of all, he speaks about a man who begins to build a tower, but he doesn't have the funds. He didn't say, hey, I don't know if I've got the funds to finish this. He just goes out and he starts building. And all of a sudden, the building stops. What happened? He didn't count the cost. The second one is the king who goes to war. And he says, what king would go to war and, figure it, and not figure out, hey, if I only got... A thousand guys, I can't meet an army of ten thousand, or ten thousand, I can't meet twenty thousand, or whatever the odds might be. What's the problem with the king? He didn't, he didn't consider the crisis. And when you dwell on these two things, I think it becomes clear what Jesus is saying. And that is, there are, there are a lot of allegiances in our lives that keep us from true biblical, uh, discipleship. And that these allegiances, they need to be broken because what we need to understand is that discipleship is a lifelong journey. And if we don't cut every allegiance through our daily living, that hinders us from living wholly and fully and completely for Jesus, we can't be his disciples. And the message from both of these two examples, these parables that Jesus gives, I think is basically this, that if you don't in advance consider the crisis, count the cost, then somewhere along the line you're gonna finish to fail. Or you're going to fail to finish, I should say. (laughs) Finish to fail, that didn't make any sense. Fail to finish. Now remember, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about discipleship. And none can be a disciple who haven't settled salvation, but, but there are a lot of things that can come up in our lives that hinder us from finishing well. And in advance, we've got to count the cost. We've got to consider the crisis. I think Moses, again, is a good example. Think about him. He counted the cost. Moses knew what it would cost a person to lead a rebellion against Pharaoh. But he did it. He considered the crisis. He knew that his people, uh, that, that the Israelites, needed a leader. And so he presented himself. And we need more like Moses. And I think Paul kind of summarizes this when he says in Acts 20 and verse 24, But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received to the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul counted the cost. He was told, you go to Jerusalem, it's going to cost you. He said, none of these things move me. He considered the crisis. I want to finish. I want to I want to finish the gospel ministry because if I don't, people will die and go to hell. And our purpose and our resolve must be to remove whatever allegiance we might have right now that could hinder us from finishing well in the future. And Jesus says: if you don't do that, you can be saved and on your way to heaven. But you can't be my disciple. And I'm convinced that a lot of the problems we experience in our culture and our society right now can be tied directly to this. For far too long, we have been very unconcerned with discipleship and disciple-making or being disciples. We love the idea of going to heaven. We don't love so much the idea of living like we're going. Jesus said, that's fine but you can't be my disciple. So my question to you tonight is, how are you doing on your road to discipleship? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that salvation is free, and and, and there is no cross for us to bear, and that Jesus bore that cross, and when he hung upon it, he said very plainly, it is finished, paid in full. But Lord, in the matter of discipleship, of living for you, Lord, truly, this is just reasonable, as Paul said in Romans 12. Help us, Lord, to count the cost, to consider the crisis, to live for you no matter what may come. Not for our own good or our own glory, but for yours, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor.